The views expressed in this podcast are only those of the individuals featured on this show and do not in any way reflect the official policy of the United States government. If you're interested in learning more about the impact of labor on economic growth and political stability, particularly from a Southern African perspective, please subscribe to Leading Labor. Here, we have difficult, honest, and open conversations that seeks to explore the multifaceted impact labor has and continues to play in the Southern African region from trade union leaders, activists, researchers, and everyday workers like yourself. Please join us as we discover why Southern Africa is truly leading labor. So, hey, Max, how's it going? I'm good, Brandon. How are you? Good. I'm really excited about today's discussion. What are you looking forward to? I'm kind of, I've talked to Mavis, went to her office in Botswana. She's definitely not only a leading labor leader in the region, she's extremely knowledgeable. So I'm really excited just to get down and just talk about something that perhaps is overlooked, which is why a regional labor institution like Satuk matters and why women leaders in a union movement matter. I agree. I'm very excited to speak with her about her experience as a, as a woman working in labor unions and working in labor rights and really looking forward to talking about that in conjunction with all the other issues that are shaping labor rights today. Me too. Mavis, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Brendan. How are you? Good. My goodness. I feel like it was just yesterday I was in Botswana visiting you. <laughs> Thank you for being so welcoming. You're most welcome anytime, Brendan. And um, we look forward to another visit when you come to Botswana. Yes, I have to pay a visit to Botswana, hopefully really totally soon. I know that Satuk has a long history in the labor movement in Southern Africa. But before I get to why Satuk is so important, tell us about yourself. How did you enter labor. You have a unique story. Do you mind sharing? Um, no, thank you very much, Brendan. Um, as I said, my name is Mavis Gohotite. I am a native of Botswana, born and bred. I grew up in a village called Mulepule, just 60 kilometers outside of the city of Haburoni, south, uh, southwest of Haburoni. Now, my interests in the labor movement started when I was working at the University of Botswana in the library. The university underwent a restructuring exercise around 1997. And from the outcome of that exercise, I felt like we, you know, staff were not consulted enough and that there were a lot of disparities and that, um, you know, some of us were treated unfairly, especially myself, because I had just come out of university and I felt that my entry point had to reflect that I actually have some form of, you know, qualification over and above just a high school diploma. So um, that is how then I started, you know, getting, you know, involved more with trade unions. One of the things that really hyped me a lot was that we worked shifts. I mean, all of you have been through, you know, college, through university, and you know that the library opening hours, uh, some are 24 hours or until very late. So I worked shifts, and we would get also days off. And I felt that, you know, the way we were treated in terms of working long hours, and there was less compensation for that. So I became a junior library staff representative in way back in 2000. So that's how my journey started. But as you know, it started at the time, in a library. I, <laughs> <You knew laughs> in a library. I mean, <laughs> I I actually have library and information management diploma. Uh, and I switched completely, you know, and look at where I am now. Uh, because um, during the process of, um, you know, collective bargaining and just trying to make sure we have the right policies in place and getting staff consulted, negotiating, I realized that I had a passion, a lot of passion for 
trade unions for advocating for workers' rights. And at the at that time, it was you know people felt like to be in the union, it, the union was for the unskilled, you know, people who are not educated. Um, so I was just one of those few that had just come out of university and we we were really you know very strong you know advocates for for labor rights. Um, then decided that you know I needed to switch from being you know just being a library officer to either labor relations. And so I started being a shop steward, went through the rank and file, and then I found the university, Wayne State University had some scholarships for international students. It was just by luck <laughs> that I stumbled on that, and it was just a partial scholarship. I applied, I got um, admitted, and then the Utilities Workers Union and some other families in the U.S. put together some money for me to be able to do, you know, um, labor relations at Wayne State University. When I finished in 2008, I decided to come back home because the goal of coming to the U.S. was just to make sure that I get the right education. I get involved in a lot of, you know, union work uh, so that I learn when I come back then I can apply what I've learned um, and translate it into theory and build the labor movement, not only in Botswana, but also in Southern Africa. So there is the GLUE program. I don't know whether you all are familiar with the Global Labor University program. Um, Yeah, Uh, there is one that is offered by VETS. There is one in uh, uh, Brazil. There is also Penn State um, offers that as well as um, I think in Germany as well. So I applied to um, Brazil when I finished my undergrad and as well as VEDS, and I was accepted in both. So I decided um, it's better for me to move closer to home because also South Africa has a lot of history when it comes to, you know, trade unions and the liberation movement. Exactly. So I attended the master's program at VEDS. Unfortunately, I didn't finish my master's because my dad fell ill, had a stroke, so I needed to come back home to to help my parents i have a very i come from a very close knit family background so i finished my coursework but i was not able to complete my my research which is still pending and i'm hoping i can pursue that soon and immediately i came back home then i decided that i didn't want to join the corporate world and that is when um um Satu needed a gender coordinator and um, at the time, they wanted somebody to go to Mozambique uh, for a women's mentorship program. And um, I, I was ready to do that uh, on behalf of Satsuk. And then when I came back, I, I, I joined them. I later on left Satsuk uh, also because of my, my, my parents, you know, my family issues. But then I came back to Satuk again in 2019 after my dad passed on. So I've just been in the labor movement practically for the rest of, you know, basically for all my adult life. <laughs> you know, that's such a transformation and transformative story. I think that it is so interesting that the way in which labor awakened your desire for social justice and social change and has led you to Satuk. Do you mind just because I know you mentioned Satuk multiple times? What is Satuk? What are some of its core objectives? One of its what are it, its aims as a regional labor union body? Thank you, Brandon. Let me just give you a, a brief break, background on what Satuk is. You know, one of the goals behind the formation of Satuk, Southern Africa Trade Union Coordination Council was to establish a a regional trade union movement that would influence SADC policies at both regional and national levels. So since its uh, formation, Satuk has assumed a very high political profile, reporting on economic, political, and labor conditions in the quest to influence policies and labor conditions in SADC. Initially, um, Satuk engaged SADC through the Southern Africa Labor Commission, it was the SALC uh, until 1995 when the SADC Council of Ministers established the SADC Employment and Labor Sector, the SADC ELS. Uh, we usually uh, you hear me refer to SADC ELS, Brendan. So the ELS was based on a tripartite structure 
with representatives from government, business, and trade unions in the region. And um, since then, SADC has undergone further changes, particularly with the Republic of South Africa joining in 1994. You know, to SADC's original aim of investment in the development of infrastructural projects, um, they added the promotion also of greater economic integration for the region. So the SADC Extraordinary Summit in 2001 approved major restructuring of SADC institutions under which the 21 sectors have been grouped into clusters. So under the setup, um, uh, the setup, the new setup, the SADC National Committees, you know, coordinate the respective member states' interests relating to SADC at a regional level, uh, and there's integrated committees of ministers, the ICMs which coordinate work of different clusters under the new directory. And the, the new SADC includes the tracker system and the organ on, on defense and security, and also the, the directory in which we fall into where the SADC ministers of employment, uh, business, SADC private sector forum, and SATUK sit as a tracker type. Our role as SATUK and affiliates is to coordinate and network our affiliate activities on original policy issues, you know, issues of solidarity building, you know, actions and campaigns. We provide information on static protocols to our affiliate activities and events to, you know, our affiliates and to make sure that we establish data bank and interactive, you know, websites so that all our affiliates are able to have access to information at one point. We also create awareness and provide timely advice to our affiliates on regional policy issues, and we, we also then in turn present affiliate views to relevant structures of SADC, uh, this, which is the link between our affiliates and the SADC member states. We also expose, you know, errant governments, governments that do not implement and maintain a functioning, you know, SADC that should involve civil society and trade unions in the meetings. We also build capacity of our affiliates to understand and engage effectively in regional policy issues to bring, you know, affiliates together so that they can also share experiences to facilitate and promote the process of regional that's a, integration. That's a lot that you guys are yeah. so, so, so busy and it's such a, a, a critical role Satu plays. Why is labor, why are trade unions so critically important for Southern Africa? I know that's, I mean, I know even in the United States, you know, trade union, the role of trade unions is, is, is hotly contested and debated. And I'm just curious, in the African context, the Southern African context, why, from your perspective, are trade unions so interconnected to the broader democratic governance advancements in the, in the region? I think with, with the whole regional approach, within the region, it's very important that labor concerns are also addressed in that fashion. You know, the integrated approach of static calls, you know, for a regional approach also, since as nations integrate, it means labor markets also have to integrate. And this allows for Satuk to address issues at a regional level, as most policies are now being, you know, developed at a regional level. For example, when we talk about the labor migration policy framework, that is being developed at a regional level. It means that we need to play a role in Estatuk and make sure that we influence this policy, that standards are set and harmonized within the region, and that these policies are then domesticated and cascaded at the national level. So addressing these issues at a, labor, at a regional level allows for the full integration of labor issues at the regional level. And this means that unions can have an impact on policy before it, it is implemented at the national level. And uh, due to globalization, the labor market is becoming one. And people, and you know, people through platforms like uh, the structures that we have at Satuk with governments and business, we can also work within the region from any country that calls for addressing, you know, issues at regional level. I mean, when we talk about issues of um, to have economic partnership agreements. We also used to have a project on, on, on AGOA. We are now talking the ACFTA. I've mentioned also labor migration. 
This means that, you know, Southern Africa must pull together, you know, resources, you know, from all sectors if we are going to to move forward. And we felt we can make much more impact as a as, as labor if we, you know, influence policy at a much higher level. Um, because then it, it, it becomes easier when these policies are now being implemented at a, at a national level. It means that also we are able to leverage on those unions that are strong, like your Kosachus, you know, and, and when we come, we talk about sectoral unions, um, like NUM, I think NUM, yes, National Union of Mine Workers is one of those that are very strong within the region. And we've been talking about, um, portability of social security benefits for mine workers and stuff. So those are all the issues where, where, as I said, we can, you know, leverage on unions that are stronger so that we are able to pick up those that are a, a bit weak and we speak with one voice. I don't know, Brendan, if that answers um, your question. No, it does. And it's actually a good way to frame the role of labor in broader policy discussions because you raise the role labor plays in trade agreements and understanding how to facilitate, you know, migration patterns, how to ensure workers' rights are protected. You know, I think these are issues that Satuk has taken up and has played an effective role. And I, I'm curious with how unions have transformed, has union leadership transformed? You said mm-hmm. that you became interested and the trade union movement as a librarian, are there many young women who look at the leadership cross trade unions and say, I don't know if I, there's a seat at the table for me? Interestingly, I'm just, I'm one of those few women that have actually, you know, rose through the ranks and managed to reach to where, the level where I am at now. And there are very few of us. So there is need to strengthen women participation in the trade unions themselves because we can't be leaders in an institution where we are not, if you know what I'm saying. And there is therefore the need to harness and consolidate the participation of, of women in the trade unions, being members of the union. And that is not only to say them being members, but actively participate from shop floor level national level as well as at the regional and international level. For example, as I mentioned, when when I joined the university library, I was I, I joined and I didn't think there was any need to be in the union. And then when I started experiencing problems, then I decided to join the union. But then I didn't go to meetings. Nobody ever said, you know, there's going to be a meeting. Do you know about the union constitution? You know, stuff like that. All that I knew was that money was being deducted from, you know, my pay slip to go towards the union, but I didn't know exactly how the union uh, is useful to me as a worker. So looking back at that experience, I, 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 I have learned that there is a lot of work that needs to be done to capacitate young workers, especially young women, uh, to ultimately become leaders um, in the labor movement. You know, beyond participation of women, there's also need to have policies in place and strategies that speak to gender equality and women empowerment, but also that speak to opening up spaces for women to be able to get the necessary training that is, you know, the necessary skills uh, they require to be leaders. We need to move away from having women as leaders just for you know, posters or saying we have a women leader. But we need, we need women leaders who know and understand what it means to be a leader. So there is need for that feeling, for women to be appreciated as effective leaders, not just to, you know, cross the box that at least here we have, you know, women. There's also need for development of mentorship programs where women who are already in leadership, you know, positions provide mentorship to young uh, women to also learn from them and build on what women like me already that are in leadership have done. They, they need to implement policies that promote gender equality and women empowerment at the trade union level. 
um, as it then becomes mandatory ingrained in the trade union that women should become leaders. I, I mean, for for example, uh, the trade unions are predominantly male-led. And you can imagine, Brendan, the, especially when it comes to culture of servitude, I, when you look at the way we've been raised, uh, different cultures where women have to be submissive, where women can be answerable, where women have to be seen not to be heard. I mean, for example, uh, there are a lot of uh, stigma and, and, and all sorts of names that are derogatory names that are attached to a woman um, that rises in the trade unions because they begin to feel that you adopt the masculine, you know, the, 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 the macho character that men display and uh, they, they call it funny names. I mean, uh, in the labor movement, most of the time, when somebody said, oh, you know, Comrade Mavis, and they'd say, oh, you mean that one who behaves like a man? You know, such things are things <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> that make uh, other women feel intimidated and feel like they can't actually join the union. But if you are a very strong, confident, and assertive woman, and you know your rights, and you know what you are doing, and what you are fighting for, you place service above self, and you know you want to fight for social justice. You, if you get the right mentorship, you get um, the right training, the right support, you know, from all sectors, then. Um, I think we can be able to achieve um, a lot in terms of making sure that we 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 have you know we achieve gender parity within the trade union movement. How far are unions from realizing gender parity uh, when it comes to leadership positions? I still I I feel we are still far. I mean the um we are still far from achieving gender parity. We need to, you know, we need to really do a lot in terms of transforming the labor movement within itself to accommodate women and also to making sure that the women themselves, you know, are able to um, stand up and say, I think, you know, I, I, the fact that I'm a woman does not hinder me from becoming a union leader. I mean, I've just mentioned there's not a lot of women-led trade unions in Southern Africa, and this is a historical issue that needs to be addressed, as there's been a huge domination of men, you know, over the years. I mean, it's such since its establishment in 1983, I'm the first woman executive secretary to assume this position. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to empower women to assume these leadership positions to be able to speak confidently in meetings and being part of the trade union movement from grassroots and and ensuring that you go through the structures uh, as well as the men do and risk, you know, even the executive structures until you get to the international level. It's not easy um, because of the challenges that we understand around the home and family setup where now, uh, you know, the woman is also a caregiver. So I think once we can find a way in which we can uh, slowly remove the barriers that exist in terms of access for women to to training, skills development, you know, women-specific programs are lacking within the unions and where they have women um, programs, they are not well resourced or not well funded. So they need to create opportunities for women to participate in meetings and, you know, being able to create safe spaces is what is needed. One of the questions that comes up also is, yes, there is a space that has been created for women to participate, but there is the question is when are these meetings being held and where are these meetings being held? Uh, can they accommodate a mom that is um, 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 a nursing mom uh, with an infant? Um, Are they able to accommodate women maybe having to travel long distance from the meetings to go back home? You know, such issues need to be taken into consideration because it makes it difficult for women to participate. And if we cannot address these issues, then we would still have women lagging behind. Uh, there are opportunities, yes, Brendan, there are opportunities for growth 
for women in the union, you know, growth as a person and, and for, for women to get involved. And I've given myself an, as an example, but it's not um, a walk in the park. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment on the woman's part, you know, and, you know, to be able to feel at ease and not um, look at themselves and say, because of my gender, then I'm hindered from, from being able to progress. Your reflections underscore you can't be what you can't see, but also the multi-layered challenges that affect women leadership and the different barriers, but also different obstacles to leadership that they have to overcome. And I think that's something that is at times overlooked, but it calls for a greater reevaluation of how we cultivate leadership and how we provide and create spaces for leadership. Maybe she said something very telling about how labor unions may have um, functions to include women in, in the practices of the union, but there are different logistical and social issues that are barriers towards that participation. One of the things we've talked about with our research in our previous interviews is that implementation of policy is much more difficult than actually passing the policy. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is how do, how do large scale, you know, coordination union councils, how do they make sure that these unions are actually putting into practice the inclusionary legislation that they put in place? Um, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I think uh, one of the things that we used to, other than monitoring and evaluation of the program, we do have the labor, the, the labor constitutions themselves, the trade union constitutions themselves, because they spell out the functions of the union, the roles of each and everyone in the union. They spell out um, the role of the executive council, the role, which is basically the board, and then the role of um, uh, um, the youth committee, the role of um, the women's committee. We, we, for the longest time, we said women's committee. But now we've changed to say gender because uh, we felt we can't talk about women's issues when we don't have the men that are, you know, sensitive to um, women's issues involved. So those constitutions also give some sort of crosses between to say in the structures, this is how you're going to get, you know, women involved. One of that is opening up the space for women. And one of them is to say, in every executive council, there should be uh, two ex-official members from the women's committee, apart from those that actually contest to be elected into office. And some constitutions actually say that there should be maybe 50-50%, 30 50-30%. But like you say, some of these policies, you know, are never implemented. And, you know, there's interest. Um, to try and make sure that we implement it. How many women do we actually have that are ready? Ready in terms of not only the passion to want to do it, also have the capability, the ability to be able to, you know, play a role within those spaces. And within the constitution also, you would find that it should include how women can be assisted. Uh, for example, can women actually bring their baby uh, to meetings? And can they also bring a nanny that, or the union can hire a nanny that can actually look after, you know, all the babies that the mothers who are members of the union are bringing to the meeting? You know, all those issues. And then you find that it's a matter of also, you know, the way the, the the structures and activities of the unions are planned, the activities for women given enough um, support, are they budgeted for? Because even though they are there, they are there in the structures, they are in the policies, the constitution outlines them. Sometimes you find that um, everything else is done except um, for you know financing activities for for women um, for women committees. So I think the spaces are there. Uh, the willingness from women, yes, there is willingness. 
there's also willingness for the men to try and you know open up and and be in, make sure that the union spaces are inclusive of women but it will take us a long way to make sure that you know everyone is integrated in the structures of, of the union right up to you know uh, the high level so we still still have a lot to do in terms of women's participation in the trade union movement. That's so fascinating how it works. Is one of the things that you you mentioned is it seems like the efforts to push forward women's rights in these labor unions is more of a grassroots effort. So how how I guess how difficult is it to pass and push forward these rights? Because you know, looking at the Satuk website. It covers over 14 member states, 22 affiliated unions, and 5 million people. How difficult is it to standardize practices for inclusion, depending on different administrations in these countries and different unions? How does that work for standardization? That's interesting. One of the things that I really wanted to do is to make sure that we have, as I said, an integrated database. Like right now at the SADC level, they are working on the labor market observatory where there's going to be, they're going to be adding a lot of information, you know, about who is where, what. So at, at SADC level, we also want to do that so that we'd be able to track how many members we have maybe, you know, in South Africa at COSATU, com- combination of COSATU, NACTU and FEDUSA, so much members. And out of that, that, um, so much percentage is women. And then, and then say, okay, uh, which women comi- which women committees are functional, and and be able to set standards, you know, uh, throughout all our affiliates. But of course, that is going to be a long term project. We 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 are hopefully going to start piloting it in the near future uh, in the programs that are coming up, the, the next program cycles that are coming up, and we will start with a few countries, maybe five. The, the reason why I'm saying that is because you may, in Southern Africa, uh, Max, you find that we also don't have the same capabilities in terms of IT, information technology infrastructure. Even at Satu right now, where lack of proper equipment, stuff like that. So baby steps towards making sure that while we are talking about regional integration and harmonization, you know, at a regional level with member states, we also are able to put Satu at that level where, you know, it, it is visible, its viability is felt, and that it remains relevant. And we can only do so if we are able to have, you know, factual data in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of our own members and also to put a measuring stick, say, you know, at a minimum standard, this is what we expect, you know, from all, from unions or from our affiliates. Not only in terms of uh, being able to advocate, to collectively bargain with the employer, to social dialogue with the government, but there are also issues of internal democracy, you know, internal governance, ethical issues within the, the labor movement itself that, you know, um, do we really serve our mandate? Do the membership dues go towards what they're supposed to do for them? Do the members themselves feel that they are being serviced, you know, adequately uh, by the labor movement? So I think in short, to answer you, this is work in progress and and hopefully we would also be able to benchmark with um, others in the other regions in Africa and also be able to, you, you know, do exchange programs. And some of those things have been happening, but at a minimal scale. But we are saying, you know, moving forward and now, you know, being able to leverage on being able to do things, you know, virtually utilizing technology. Some of these, um, some of these, um, things that you want to implement, um, can actually be done, um, if we start, um, looking at them, you know, in, you know, like the vision being that we would also want to get to a point where if we can influence uh, policy at a regional level, our members should also be very strong to be able to influence policy at the national level and be able to social dialogue with the, their government and and also their employers, the business. 
one thing that's come up and it's frequently discussed, particularly in the United States, is unions and then the unionization is on a decline. And I'm I wonder when you talk about the impact unions are hoping to have on policy and efforts to use data to understand kind of using empirical analysis on what can be done to address and support women leaders. I wonder more broadly about how is unionization evolving in Southern Africa? Is it on the decline? Is it, is it, or is it increasing? I'm just curious if, to learn a little bit more about the state of unionization in Southern Africa. Yeah, I think, um, like everywhere else, there's been a decline in, you know, union membership and due largely to retrenchment. And with COVID-19 also, a lot of people were laid off, you know, and, and there's a, a lot of unemployment because as trade unions, we organize within the traditional work setting, you know, workplace. So what we are doing now is coming up with strategies of, you know, uh, making sure that we can organize, you know, outside, you know, the traditional workplaces, or organize the informal economy, you know, your domestic workers, your farm workers, sure that we organize migrant workers. And also to say now, given the new nature of work, where people have to work virtually, I mean, the question that comes up that I raised in the meeting the other day was that, you know, what about virtual workers? Somebody would, when you try to organize them, they would say to you, is there a need for me to go, to be in the union because I don't go to a traditional workplace? And the question is, workers will always have rights and the, these rights need to be protected, whether they are virtual, whether you are a migrant, whether you are a domestic worker. They, there's always you know, rights that needs to be protected for as long as a worker. A worker is a worker, you know, regardless of um, their work, you know, status, uh, setup. So there is a lot of work that needs to do, as, to do as trade unions to make sure that people get to appreciate that it is very important for them to be, to join the trade union movement. And I think just in the last question I had mentioned, one of the most important critical things is that we need to service our members because when we service our members, the ones that we have, then it means there is going to be retention, union retention of those that are still in employment. And then those that join the informal economy, they would still be able to, they'd actually be the ones that who are our sounding board out there to say, you know, hey, you know, there is a union and we can organize ourselves, you know, as associations, as members of the union, so that we are able to be heard uh, and, and get the necessary assistance whenever we need it. So, yeah, like everywhere else, members are declining and we are trying our best to do as much as we can to organize and, and make sure that um, also when we advocate for creation of employment uh, with our with our member states, that when when those spaces are opened, you know, for employment of youth, then we are able to capture them. And also there is the issue of training, you know, people to be able to sustain themselves and offer, uh, you know, start their own business, small businesses that they can also employ other people who then we can also be able to organize. So I think it's it's it's, it's all about making sure that we create awareness about the importance of the union, what the union can do, not only within a, a work setup, but also, you know, the role of the trade union within the communities that we live in. In that way, then we are able to gain rapport. We are, we are able to join hands with, you know, the rest of civil society in making sure that uh, we advocate, you know, for, for policies, socioeconomic policies that you know, promote sustainable and equitable economic growth and development, you know, to alleviate poverty within our region. Mavis, you said something that might just be the tagline for the show, which is, you know, a work, these rights must be protected because a worker is a worker regardless of status, regardless of immigration status. 
I think that's truly powerful when we look at all the other issues involving labor rights, tying in the role that COVID-19 has had on labor rights. Can you talk a little bit about how how the virus either pushed forward the women's rights movement, pushed back the women's rights movement? How has it affected your work in advocacy? Thank you for that. Um, I think COVID has pushed back our work in, because we are not able to meet, um, you know, physically. And, uh, also those that are able to meet, you, you, you have to, the numbers are limited to a specific number, uh, to avoid, you know, uh, people infecting each other. So that in itself has meant that there hasn't been a lot of, you know, activities that bring you know, people together, especially women. And as we said, women thrive better when they work together and um, they can constantly meet, failing which they get discouraged, they get, you know, they feel like they're, they have been left there all alone. So we, we've just been trying to come up with a lot of outreach programs where, you know, our presence can be felt uh, despite the distance between us. Uh, between us and our affiliates, and we, we we are trying to ensure that also our affiliates at the national level are able to reach out, you know, to all their members. Uh, what we we try to do also is to make sure that we utilize um, social media to make sure that um, we keep people, you know, actively involved. We have formed various WhatsApp groups for various committees for various, you know, experts maybe. For example, there will be an, a, a group on of trade experts. There will be a group of researchers on labor migration, a group of researchers on um, decent work, or social protection, stuff like that. But where, where whereas uh, COVID has brought in, you know, um, a lot of challenges, but there are also opportunities that are, like I've said, of new forms of of making sure that we organize, we make sure that we we pull together. Now, talking about what COVID has done to women, I think it brings us to, you know, the issue of Convention C190. I don't know whether I'm jumping the gun because, you know, that convention talks about issues relating to the empowerment of women and, and, you know, taking away issues of harassment and violence, which tend to restrict women participation and violate rights of women at the workplace and rights of women in the union. So during COVID, we saw, you know, also a lot of not only violence within the workspace, but, you know, a a, a rise in domestic violence when uh, people were faced with lockdowns uh, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, our focus right now is to make sure that this convention can be ratified uh, throughout the region and that not only do governments have to ratify and domesticate C1, the, uh, Convention C190, but also to make sure that uh, C190 is institutionalized within the union and that union members domesticate, uh, uh, domesticate it and make, and, and actually, you know, walk the talk because it also, you know, takes us back to the issue of, you know, gender equality and equity. We should become a reality even in the union in ensuring that, you know, um, this happens, not only calling on the member states themselves, but making sure that it's something that we do within the union to make sure that the rights of women, you know, are protected. Right now, we only have Namibia and South Africa having ratified Convention C190, and that speaks to also the 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 point that I brought up earlier, that you find that the unions in Namibia, the unions in South Africa, okay, as well as Zimbabwe, they are very strong, and not only also in numbers, they are very knowledgeable in terms of you know all these issues, and because they are able to put together, they are able to social dialogue. That is why. Um, they are able to push this campaign in order for their um, countries to ratify and domesticate um, conventions, not only C190. So um, the, the COVID showed uh, that, you know, there is a lot that we need to do 
um, um, as trade unions. It, it only amplified um, the problems that were existing before. And it's just a wake-up call to say, you know, we need to speed up in terms of, you know, coming up with strategies to address these issues. Otherwise, the union will become extinct. No, that's a critical point, especially the ratification of ILO Convention C-190 and how it's important not just to ratify, but ensuring the domestication of this a critical document, this critical ILO convention. And it's nice to know that Satuk is playing a lead in the broader coordination of the ratification process across the region. I have one parting question because you mentioned that you studied in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when we talk about people who study in the States or people who understand the U.S. experience, I was like, well, what can the U.S. experience, how can you take that and what lessons learned can you apply to various contexts? And I always find that question of framing to be a bit incomplete because Mm. I think it presupposes that the U.S. model, the U.S. understanding of kind of engagement is going to always have lessons to be learned without realizing that we too the U.S. has things to learn from other countries. I think the value in engaging on platforms like this is a shared commitment to learning and growing, particularly by emphasizing the Southern African experience. And so I was wondering if you can just highlight what lessons can the U.S. labor movement learn from Southern Africa or from Botswana, or from the various trade unions in the region. I'm just curious about what can we learn and what can we have a better understanding in terms of our self-reflection and understanding of how we look forward. Um, what can we take from the Southern African experience? I think, yes, there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Obviously, um, the U.S. is much more progressed in terms of, you know, policy. The trade unions have been around for a while. But um, one one of the issues is that um, the trade unions in Southern Africa have have played a role, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a major role in the liberation of, uh, movement of the people in Southern Africa. Some of the democracies within the Southern Africa region are born out of the existence of the trade unions, and we would not have been able to do it if we didn't. It wasn't for the trade unions. So the the only other thing that I think uh, trade unions in the U.S. can learn from us is the cultural differences and the the economic setups within our region, you know, the, the whole dynamics, you know, about the relationship between, you know, family rights, workers' rights, and the whole, you know, um, issue of human rights. Um, when we started the discussion, you, you talked about you know, people that can strongly advocate for LGBTI issues, and if, if we know some here, so that we can recommend, and yes, we can. But what I'm, what I mean is that the the US is much more liberal um the in terms of you know you know inclusiveness of of people you know by race by gender by you know immigration status and stuff like that whereas you know for us we are infant democracies. We are still learning. We battle a lot with a lot of corruption, with a, with a lot of, you know, monarchies. So I think it, it would be good to just have a, probably exchange problem, programs between the trade unions, especially visiting the, the, you know, the secretariat, like an equivalent of the Solidarity Center is Satuk here in East Africa is Ituk in, in West Africa is uh, or to, uh, you know, just to understand, you know, the, the dynamics around that and also um, the, the whole politics. Because I always say to people that we cannot, as trade unions, say we don't want to participate in national politics because trade unions themselves are political institutions. 
And we discuss a lot of, you know, bread and butter issues as well as ballot box issues. I mean, for me, interestingly, when, when President Obama became president, I witnessed that campaign, especially around the Michigan area, which was spearheaded by the trade unions and, and how the whole uh, political landscape then changed because of that. So I think trade unions themselves, especially within Africa, don't realize that they can actually be a vehicle to ensuring, you, you know, the change that, you know, we need in our societies for the lives of our people to, to, to improve, to, to bridge the gap between the rich and poor and make sure that we have a very strong middle class, you know, make sure that um, the inclusion of young girls, uh, women into not only in the trade unions, in the whole sectors of, you know, the economy. So there is a lot uh, uh, of exchange that is not easy to articulate, uh, but when somebody comes into experience, like, for example, when I talk to people about my experiences in the U.S., it doesn't register the same as somebody then who then goes and says, no, I know what you're talking about because I've been there. So um, I think um, um, there is a lot that we can learn from each other. Um, there is a lot that goes without being put on the website, without uh, being published in the newsletters, that only one can experience if they're physically present in the country. I, I understand it completely. I, it was a kind of a tricky question. So, <laughs> so I do appreciate the response and I do appreciate the time. No, thank you so much, Mavis, for your, your leadership, for your service to the movement and also to your courage to raise issues on involving women's rights, but also looking forward to the future and how the labor movement can be a a critical vehicle for advancing policies that support workers, but also workers' families, the workers' ability to advocate for their own rights at the ballot box. I think these are all interconnected. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Brandon. You're most welcome anytime. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I know it's cold in the U.S. now. <laughs> oh, my God. It's very warm here. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Take care, babies. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Leading Labor Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Department of State and the Virtual Student Federal Service Program. Leading Labor seeks to expand awareness, on the impact of labor on broader socioeconomic issues and to demonstrate why Southern African voices are leading labor.